0: Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Terius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Are you interested in how historical views about craftwork have changed over time? Perhaps you've heard about the Cartesian Divide and want to know more. Or maybe you've simply found yourself pondering on the relationship between work in the shop and your sense of enjoyment or pride. Any investigation into the nature of craftsmanship is bound to be interesting, and I think that The Craftsman by Richard Sennett is a very well-argued book, and it's got a lot of interesting history and observations. However, today's book is by no means an easy read. I'll apologize here for the length of time between episodes. I hope you'll cut me some slack, given the nature of this book. It's really not something you can whiz through in a few days and then just whack out a review. I wanted to take the time to review it properly, and unfortunately that was a process that took quite some time, in fact, a lot longer than I would have liked. If I compare this to a few books I've enjoyed, this is not Rogowski's *Handmaid* or Peter Korn's autobiography. Both of those books explored similar topics and questions and answered them through story and entertaining anecdotes. Nancy Hiller's excellent book made me think a lot but after I'd finished reading not while I was reading. So I think this is a starting point in understanding the book. Excluding notes the book is 296 pages long so that sounds relatively doable but in my experience each chapter let's call it 20 or 30 pages is pretty much the the maximum that you could get through in a sitting. After that I'm starting to have brain pop. So I'd suggest a sitting at a time and possibly one chapter a week for a couple of months is a good way to read this book. I picked this book up in October-November with a serious intent to get a review out before Christmas. I've only just finished it now. It's that book that sits folded up next to the bed that has to deal with the I can't face you today buddy speech for evening after evening and sometimes week after week. And yet when I'm in the mood for it and I pick up the book and give it a dedicated hour or two in a sitting, and I read it seriously, I really enjoy it and I learn a lot. It's one of the books I'm most conflicted about, and I I really have no idea on how to score it. It's a book that rewards a careful read. But I was thinking back to Alexander Langlands' book, Craft, which I gave a terrible score to, as you might remember. And Craft, a serious examination of a variety of crafts, is a book that I would describe as scholarly but yet relatively easy reading. Next to The Craftsman, Craft looks positively light-hearted and just races along. However, on the other side of the coin, I often will fold over the corner of a page of a book when I find something particularly worthy of thought or a great quote. Usually this is five maybe 10 per book. The Craftsman has nearly 30. Also in this process, usually because I fold over the edges of the page towards the page I want to read, so you can't have two sides of a page being bookmarked as noteworthy. Richard Sennett's book is the first one I have had to resort to folding the top and bottom of a page to remember quotes both on the front of a page and then on the reverse. As I said, there's nearly 30 dog-eared corners in this book, and for me, that's an exceptional count. And the book's not badly written. It's not packed with dry numbers, and it's not including scholarly work simply for the sake of filling the pages or to try and be overly comprehensive. I find the reverse. The book is well written, and it feels like every paragraph has been carefully thought through to build the ideas up. And likewise, each chapter is almost designed and crafted and executed in a way that makes you feel that it must have gone through a large number of revisions. Also, it's noteworthy that elements of the book like the notes and the references are very broad. Sometimes when I read a book, you can almost pin down the half dozen or so books that the author read without having to read his suggested reading list or visit the notes that she's put together. I think that reading the source material for Senet's book would take an extraordinary effort, as the amount of research and synthesis he has done is frankly incredible. I'll finish this section discussing the style by stating that the book is well-written, well-designed, cohesive and scholarly. It however does not tolerate fools, so if you're planning your next woodworking project in your head at the same time as reading the book, be prepared to go back a few pages and skip a few pages back to get back on track. It's a book that I suggest would make an excellent audiobook choice. I've not listened to it in that format, but I did find a version online that's about 11 hours long, and that feels right. I was going to say, maybe this book is your friend on a long road trip. Just pay attention. Now let's have a look a little bit more at the author. Richard Sennett is the Centennial Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics, and formerly a University Professor of the Humanities at New York University. His work and studies revolve around social ties in cities and the effects of urban living on individuals in the modern world, and the nature of work in modern society and the sociology of culture. He's written nearly a dozen books on a wide range of topics, and the titles will give you some idea of the scope and breadth. Families Against the City, The Fall of Public Man, and Flesh and Stone, which is an overview of the design of cities from ancient to modern times. The Hidden Injuries of Class, The Corrosion of Character, and The Culture of the New Capitalism all give some ideas of his writing. But I think that he may arguably best be remembered for his works about Homer Faber, Working Man, Man the Craftsman and Creator. The Craftsman was first published in 2008, and the trilogy is completed with Together, The Rituals, Pleasures and Politics of Cooperation published in 2012, and Buildings and Dwellings, Ethics for Cities, on the Making of the Urban Environment. I haven't read either of the second two titles, but I do plan on getting them in the future, so I guess, notwithstanding some of what I've said, that's a recommendation in its own right. Now let's take a look at what the book is about. The essence of the book is about the relationship man has with making. As the author states in the beginning of the book, he intuitively felt that making is thinking, and that there is an inseparable connection between the processes. This differs from a lot of the kinds of constructs that have unfortunately evolved, well, ever since the Cartesian divide became accepted, and, well I guess, possibly the defining characteristic of modern civilization. Before I lose a lot of listeners here, I'll explain this in a bit more detail. You've probably heard the famous French philosopher quotes Descartes I think, therefore, I am. Essentially a separation between thinking and the physical world. In a way this sounds noble or harmless, but unfortunately it has a range of deeply disturbing consequences. For example, this is the kind of thinking that devalues any work that is considered blue-collar or predominantly physical and overvalues more cognitive applications. It's the root, I would suggest, of the problem of underpaid mechanics who find satisfaction in their job and aimless office workers who are paid more and consequently trapped in cubicles, like the Dilbert cartoon. It creates a world where artworks such as paintings and sculptures seem to be principally the results of the mind fetch absolutely ludicrous amounts. And yet a craftsman making a beautiful piece of furniture or a hand-woven basket struggles to get the price of the material and a tiny labour rate back from consumers. Thinking, you might argue, is what makes us human. I'd argue that if you dropped most modern-day teenagers into the woods on their own, they'd pretty quickly discover how much that thinking helps, and how much the making tools is what really makes us human. Of course, as woodworkers we know this intuitively, but what is unique and wonderful about this book is how it sets out to trace the evolution of these concepts at a very deep level. Starting at the beginning we are introduced to Pandora and Hephaestus. The one about the parable about the destructive nature of technology, and the other a reflection that even in ancient times a craftsman, the deformed god, could have a different relationship with technology, and yet society, reflected in this pantheon of the gods, already shows us that the maker is slightly inferior. Hephaestus, the club-footed god, is not zipping around in a golden chariot or showing off his martial prowess. I enjoyed the anecdote here about the creation of the atom bomb and I learned some interesting history about a figure in American history who although derided by his friends, kept asking the question what size bomb should we make? What is the minimum we need to make to do the job? Perhaps if he'd been heeded, there would have been less need later for Oppenheimer to later state, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And it is from this that Sennett coins his concept of Homo Faber, as distinct from Homo sapiens, the thinking man, or Homo Labyrinths, the human as a beast of burden. I like this concept, man as maker, Homer Faber. The book sets out by first exploring Western civilization's troubled relationship with technology, and this expands on that Pandora myth. There are stories about guilds and workshops, Diderot's encyclopedia, the making of violins by Stradivarius, and a host of other stories. The four sections in the first third of the book are The Troubled Craftsman, The Workshop, Machines, and Material Consciousness. This covers everything from guild-based workshops to the fears created by robots, I guess because of their ability to replace humans. I found this part very interesting. There's quite a detailed section where robots and automata as machines are discussed. This covers areas like the fears engendered by a machine that replaces humans with competencies that humans never had versus machines that replace drudgery Versus machines that extend capability. It was an interesting investigation into why we are scared of Terminators, but love our hand planes. After this first section, which investigates our complicated and often contradictory relationships with tools and machines, the second section of the book turns to the mechanics of the hand. A discussion of how instructions can be either expressive or useless, and why this is the case. If you've ever picked up an instruction book or a manual and felt like it was translated into English by a drunk five-year-old, a foreign foreign language five-year-old, this is a good chapter. After I'd finished reading it I had a bit more empathy about how difficult it can be to convey intent. The hand, expressive instructions, arousing tools, resistance and ambiguity, all the chapters and topics in the section centre around our relationship with our most important faculties of touch and the sensitivity in the use of our hands. It's interesting to learn in this section that the invention of the scalpel and the techniques with which it can be used are so closely intertwined but took quite a while to develop. I found the history here to be interesting. While it focuses on using the flat side of the scalpel and the learnt muscle control, I could see a number of parallels to the work we do in the workshop. I was reminded of the interview with Shannon where he recounted how someone like Peter Philansby can use an axe with microfine precision in a way that rivals a saw cut. A learned skill, no doubt, but one that has a complex interplay between mind and body. I recently read Joshua Klein's book, Another Work is Possible, and there's a whole science there around neuromaps and how we create things and become familiar with tools. It's no exaggeration to say that when a sniper has spent years with a rifle, a surgeon with the tool, or a woodworker with a specific plane, that removing this actually leaves the person feeling incomplete for a very good reason. Their mental map has incorporated this tool into their sense of self. This is a physiological thing that happens in the brain. Before anything else, we were the toolmakers. We didn't dominate the Africa savanna with the size of our teeth. And our brain has always evolved with this capability as an integral part of its makeup. The final two chapters are on quality-driven work and the role of ability. If you've read Nihai Shitsumihei's book Flow, you'll have some understanding of the first chapter. If you've read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, you've got some idea on the second. If you've read neither, by the way, I'd endorse Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell as a fun and easy read. Flow, and I guess ironically, given the title, is a more difficult read and one I'd skip unless you've got a really good reason to read it. These chapters also have some pretty esoteric ideas on the topic, for example the concept of a sociable or an antisocial expert, and the role of loyalty in social organisations that lends themselves towards skills retention. In particular, I really like this quote from page 267, near the end of the book. Perhaps in each of us there is a Japanese engineer who wants to do things well consistently and to be distinguished for doing so. But this is only the beginning of the story. Institutions have to socialize that worker, he or she has to come to terms with blind competitiveness. The worker will have to learn how to manage obsession in the very process of working, interrogating and tempering it. The drive to do good work can give people a sense of vocation. Poorly made institutions will ignore their denizens desire that life add up while well-crafted organisations will profit from it. Something worth thinking about. And I think it leads towards the last line of the book, one about the club-footed Hephaestus who's proud of his work and who's the most dignified person we can be, in spite of all of our physical failings. And I think that's a worthy goal. In conclusion, The Craftsman by Richard Sennett is 326 pages long and you can find the book for between $16 and $23, depending on which format you choose, as at April 2021. If you're deeply curious about the nature of work and the impact on both the individual and parts of society, this book is worth getting. If you enjoy history, you will enjoy the way Senate investigates and assimilates a lot of diverse information into a cohesive constructed book. I believe you'll learn something from this book. Probably a number of things from each chapter, based purely on the examination of history and culture. Obviously, that's not going to help you make better stock grooves or saw straight, so it's a hard book to insist on being in your library. And I guess in the back of my head, I've been developing an idea for a while now that there are some big thoughts in woodworking philosophy: the radical efficiency of Uptograft, workmanship of risk or certainty by par, etc., etc and I think that this book is best considered in that category. If you're looking for woodworking philosophy and the meaning of it all, I'd give the book a a 7.5 maybe. If you're looking for a light read in the workshop, the book drops down to a 6 or so. In other words, and this is probably a good asset test, if you pick it up and read the blurb, and you are intrigued and committed to giving it a thorough read, you'll find value in it. If the back of the book doesn't interest you, walk away very quickly. So that's it for now Woodworms and remember, go make something with your hand tools and keep reading. If you've got any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. Last week I mentioned a new Patreon Kevin I love that he sent me an email describing how the podcast had been his companion on a long road trip and how he is sad that he no longer had a big back catalogue to catch up with. From the start I've wanted to create a podcast that I'd want to listen to as well and because of the nature of both podcasts as a whole and my aspirations as a creator I was absolutely loath to do advertising, internet marketing etc and sell my soul to just get thousands of followers on some social media platform. So while I mentioned Patreon in the shows A great way to support the show if you would is to spread the news to a friend who could benefit from listening. It's great to hear that there are people out there that are still finding the show and catching up on old episodes. Thanks as always for the encouragement, the interaction and the support from all of you listeners. It's always fantastic to hear from you.